Are you at the cafe or something? I hear music in the background. Yeah, there's like a little disco thing happening behind me. This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 175 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hey, everybody. We also have Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we're going to talk about... I, I picked a niche, and Jonathan started picking on me, so we're, we're going to have this conversation live. <laughs> cool. So, just to preface this a little bit, I was reading the Positioning Man- Manual by Philip Morgan, um, which incidentally was a lot shorter book than I thought it was going to be, but it's so packed with information. So I was reading it, and, you know, we talked last week about the smart TV area that I'm looking at going into. And I said, yeah, I've kind of picked my niche. I'm going to build smart TV apps for folks. And what did you say, Jonathan? (laughs) That's not a niche. It's a discipline. Right. And I was thinking about this when I was reading the positioning manual because, yeah, I didn't identify. the, The area that I'm having trouble identifying is the who. I'm pretty sure I've got the what, and that is that I want to help them expand their audience by getting them onto more platforms than they're currently on specifically on those smart TV or set-top boxes? Yes. So here's the big question. So the next step really is to think about, it's a marketing question really, like how do you get the message out about what value you have to offer people who are going to value it? So you've got this expertise that you can, you know, that's for sale. Mm -hmm. And some people have no, will gain no benefit from that. I would gain no benefit from that or whatever. The classic, my mom doesn't need that. But there's definitely someone who does need it. The question is, who is it? And if the answer to who is it is a long list of people, then which one of those is the ideal one? And uh, once you have that, then it's a question of, okay, how do I get in front of those people? Where do they hang out? Conferences do they go to? What subreddits do they read every day? What podcasts do they listen to? That sort of thing. Right. Well, Chuck, I'm sort of curious. You're interested in making apps for the Apple TV or you're interested in like providing developer services, like services to developers interested in working on the Apple TV? No, I, I want to build the apps mm-hmm. for the Apple TV, Chromecast, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. All right. So if your expertise is bringing somebody's content to the big screen, mm-hmm. so that 10 foot couch experience, yep. who needs that? Obviously, content publishers, right? And, but that's way too broad. So it is. Probably, it is, is there way a subset too in there that is not Netflix, but maybe a competitor of Netflix or a small guy who's trying to be Netflix. So I thought about this, and initially, when I was thinking about this, I was like, "Oh, I'll do this for podcasters." But the issue is, is that most podcasters don't have enough reach or enough content, or you know, they don't have a broad enough spectrum of things to need that. And at the level that I want to operate, they're not going to be able to pay me what I need to be paid to do it for them anyway. So at least for the lower level and average podcaster, I'm not going to be working with them. Yeah. So that's one of the considerations. So presumably, almost always when you talk to somebody about this, they have a discipline and there's a usually a fairly long list of different types of people or customers that they could make that would potentially benefit from the thing. And each one of them, you kind of have to rate a variety of factors. One of the factors is their ability to pay. Right. You know, how much value are they actually going to get out of this? Uh, Somebody who's podcasting for the love love of it isn't going to have a huge budget for, you know, extending their reach to Roku and Chromecast and Apple TV because they're not monetizing the content in any way. So, You know, that's not necessarily as attractive as maybe if you could find somebody who stood to benefit more from your expertise and had some kind of business model built around it. Right. I've kind of got two markets in mind for this, and I haven't, I just haven't dug deeply into which one I want to pick. And I probably need to do a little bit of research to really figure this out. And uh, Philip's book has a lot of great ideas for figuring out if the, if the market will actually support something like this. 
but one of the more obvious ones are any kind of uh, traditional media outlet. I mean, they can definitely pay, they produce their own content, and they may or may not actually be interested in getting their content onto Hulu or, you know, or Netflix or whatever. The other issue is, is that they can also then do their own branding, marketing, advertising, and make their own money. And also, some of them, so for example, CBS has an app that they have the app on the Apple TV, they have the app on pretty much everything, and you have to pay for a subscription there. And so I can also see that they may wind up doing like the one-off subscription thing. HBO also does this, where they would then have an app where you put your credentials in and then it streams the content, sort of like what Hulu and Netflix do as well. And so I could see these larger media companies being potential partners for something like this, where then I come in and provide the expertise to get their content onto these TVs through these different systems and help them set up uh, some sort of subscription model or even just put it up there so people can watch it for free if that's the way they want to go. Well, l- let me ask you a devil's advocate question or two then, Chuck. I mean, presumably Apple wants content publishers to be able to do this also. Yes. I mean, I'm not sure if you would call it an app. I'm not sure if you would call it just like putting a show up. But what added value are you going to provide that, say, Apple is not going to provide to these companies? Like, why would they need you when Apple presumably has, you know, 10, 20, 30 developer evangelists working on precisely this problem? Well, so Apple in particular and the other companies, yeah, they provide a platform where you can put these apps, but they don't actually, and they put information out there on how to develop them, but they don't actually develop the apps for you. So if you want a branded app on the Apple TV, for example, then somebody has to go build that for you in Swift or Objective-C. So they'll provide the supports, but there still needs to be a developer doing it, and these companies are not going to hire an in-house developer. You want to be the consultant they hire to put them on. Right. So with web applications, there's a certain level of maintenance that you have to do. I think with the TVs, uh, they're somewhat limited in their functionality, and so you can put something together and put it up, and for the most part, let it coast for a while until you find other features that you want added to it. And so then it's going to become more of a consulting basis of what's it going to take for us to get what our competitor has or, oh, you you brought up this bleeding edge kind of feature that nobody else has yet that it looks like the Apple TV is going to support. But for the most part, you know, it's going to be just getting them set up so that they can do HTTP live streaming in the case of the Apple TV and then managing any subscriptions if they want to manage that. And then the rest of it is just making the content visually available to the viewers. And then from there, I'd like to figure out what ways you can actually have people interact with the media content, but that's kind of a phase two thing. And I think that'll be the unique uh, selling proposition is being an expert, not just in how do I get my content onto the TV, but how do I get interaction back from the user? Okay. So this reminds me of my world, which is mobile, Mm -hmm. which has extreme platform fragmentation. No one winner uh, because Android is big in a particular way and Apple is big in a different, you know, iOS is big in a different way. Then you've got the mobile web, which is big in a different way. And then you've got, you know, Facebook and there are other, they're just just so weird the way the landscape is in mobile. And it also reminds me of people who are publishing eBooks where Amazon is a 500-pound gorilla, but there are other formats as well that work with iBooks and, and other yeah uh, other popular formats. And there's, in, in podcasts, there's like no clear winner in this space. So they can't, almost anybody who is going to be an ideal customer for you is not going to just pick one. Right. So in addition to, to having implementation across multiple platforms, which is actually the lowest value thing that you've discussed so far, they're also going to need information about which ones they should target first. So the ones that have the most market share in the audience that they're looking for. And like you said, how to actually create business value from being on each of these different platforms with all their different constraints and not just getting the content there, but how do we actually extract value? Like, like mm-hmm. how do we make money? Right. You know, if, if I'm Time Warner, how do I make money with my Beyonce videos that are exclusive to me on these different platforms? I'm, my goal is not to get them on there. My goal is to monetize them somehow. Right. So your expertise in that 
And that level would be unbelievable. So there's a couple of levels of service that you could offer, even though it sounds like you're focusing to begin with on the implementation part, which is a great place to start. But I, like I said, I don't think it's the highest value thing. I don't either. And the thing is, is that, I mean, anybody can go look up how to build these apps. And with a little bit of programming expertise, I think they can pick it up and fudge a lot of it. It isn't the app that's the critical piece. It's it's the knowing how to add value with it, how to arrange it, how to deliver it, how to collect information or, you know, sell stuff or whatever it is that's going to add value back to the business. Exactly. So, you know, and all of those things are valid. And, you know, you start where you're comfortable. And it's a very, very new market. So I think that it's, you know, really any of them are good, a good place to start. So if you're going to make a list of potential clients, I think that's the next place to go. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, a couple occurred to me that, you know, you're, you're not going to get Time Inc. out of the gate. No. So where do you start? You know, who are the, and let's just like brainstorm quickly in the the benefit for you know the potential freelancer listening to this, I suppose, is thinking outside of the box in terms of what their expertise actually is and where the value actually is and how to find an audience that is going to resonate with that value. What you're basically saying is like he needs to think of companies, like as a like at least for Chuck, he needs to think of companies that are interested in doing video, interested in reaching a wide audience, but don't have the resources of a you know, Time Warner, HBO, Netflix, one of those. I mean, yeah. are there like independent video people out there? There must be, right? So well, to get it, it occurred to me that you could do local affiliates. So people who yes. are small players in the cable game and as cable goes down and down and down, that they're faced with a huge learning curve because, you know, let's say you're like a local X, not a local access, but maybe bigger than that, like the local ABC station. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got a 12 o'clock news thing or you've got maybe you've got a podcast. See, this is this is exactly what I was thinking. So this is one of the areas. Yeah, because then what happens is I install. So I'm in Salt Lake City. So I install the KSL app on my smart TV and then I watch the news off that. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, or if they have other, you know, special interest stories for my area. And then if I wind yep. up commuting back and forth between, say, Salt Lake and New York, then I can also install the New York affiliate and check out that stuff, even if I'm sitting in Salt Lake City at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So you get these players that have they have a business model. They're making money, but the channel that they're familiar with is circling the bowl, mm-hmm. if you will. And there's this new channel that's just like, you know, they're rolling. They've got to be rolling their eyes. You know, like think of all the changes these people have been through in the last 10 years. Oh, yeah. You know, going first first to the web from the broadcast model, then to digital TV and cable. You know, well, first it was cable. Then it was the web. And then it was mobile and apps. And now it's the living room apps or however however I'm supposed to get on a set-top box these days. How do I get on? You know, it's yep. like this never-ending nightmare of just fragmentation. Because, like, what what do we do? We're just, we just want to create content and sell ads for crying yep. out loud. Yep. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that's one angle, definitely. And I think if I can get the local affiliates, then I can actually move up to any content providers that are the next level up, which are the you know the cable networks and things like that, if they need this and they're willing to outsource it, which may yeah, or may not be the case. I agree. So I think local affiliates are the lowest hanging fruit that has cash. And this is just yep. totally brainstorming who knows really, but yeah, uh, that'd be where I'd start. And then going for the, the sort of niche cable channels that, yeah. you know, are not bootstrapped. I don't think anybody, anybody that's got a cable channel is not bootstrapped, but you know, if you have some street cred with, I've done apps for local affiliates, X, Y, and Z. Yep. And you know, I know, you know, you've, you've done your research, you've done your homework, you know, that, you maybe know uh, some of these companies are public, you know what their budgets are, or you have an idea of, you know, they have a small office, there's only five employees. Mm-hmm. They definitely don't have an in-house team that's handling Roku, Apple TV, right. Fire TV, uh, Chromecast, yada, 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 every new thing that's going to come out. Yep. So you could say, hey, look, you know, let's talk. And I think, uh, you know, I've got a range of services. I can be high level or low level, whichever you want. Yep. The other group that I see are the content producers that are out there that are uh, making a bunch of money and have basically large audiences that are in the online space. So we're talking like John Lee Dumas with Entrepreneur on Fire. 
or Leo Laporte and yeah, Twit.tv Twit. yeah. or yep. Dan Benjamin with 5x5.tv or some of these other folks. Yeah, that, yeah, or, you know, maybe some of the NPR stations or producers or whatever. Yeah, um, I mean, heck, you could go straight to radio. I mean, radio has got to be suffering all the oh, way around. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's another market that is definitely going to open up here is how do we get onto the – because the new cars all have the in-dash systems where you essentially can play stuff off your phone or you can subscribe to Stitcher or, you, you, know, you know, they have a Stitcher app or you can subscribe to podcasts on your on in your car or this, that, or the other. And so if they could get basically an app with their stations and shows on there, then again, you know, they could pick up some traction there. I don't think the audio content is out on smart TVs. I think that's another thing. It's just going to be like the Pandora app, I guess, on your TV, where it shows like album art and information about the, you know, the song they're playing or the show you're playing in this case. And so I believe that I could get on there with like a devchat.tv app or something where most of the content here is audio, but people can get on and browse and see what they want to play. Yeah, so I, mean, I actually think that's a great idea. I mean, we got well. That's where I'm planning to start, and that way I can say, "Hey, look, I've got apps on all these systems." You know, that's also my ground for experimentation, where I can say, "Okay, I tried this with my audience, and this seemed to work, and this didn't seem to work." Right. No, I was just gonna say we got this. I think I mentioned last week, this or a few weeks ago, this digital box that does, uh, you know, reception, and it turns out that it does not just TV, but it does radio. Mm-hmm. So we now have a very nice, clear radio signal in our room, whereas before, you know, the radio wasn't so great. It was using the bandwidth on our Internet connection. And if you can put podcast stuff on an Apple TV or similar thing, I think that could be a big win. I think people would be very interested. Maybe this is just anecdotal. I mean, it is just anecdotal. But in our house, the best speakers in the house are attached to the TV. So yep. we've also got a couple of Alexa Sorry, what are they called? Amazon Echoes that have Alexa. I so want one of those. <laughs> they're great. I mean, they're great. And they're, I assume there are just going to be more and more of these types of things where, you know, the new Apple TV, you can talk to the remote and say, uh, Siri, play twit.tv or Siri, play devchat.tv. Mm-hmm. And you want it to be able to respond. You want to be there because mm-hmm. as that experience becomes more and more frictionless and prevalent, if you're not there, you don't exist. The other thing is, is that if, let's say that uh, on the Apple TV, you know, at the event last month, uh, they showed that you could actually do a search and it would show you which apps actually had the content you were looking for. So what if you were looking for a particular type of content on a particular technical problem and you have the 5x5 app, the Twit app, the devchat.tv app, um, you know, maybe we get Ryan Bates to put his stuff on there and there's a Railscast app. And so you get on there and you look up authentication Ruby on Rails and it shows you all the videos that can be played there or the right. podcast where people talked about it. I mean, I, I can see that as another possible in and then people are discovering your content as they look up stuff related to what you've covered. Yeah, I mean, think about how complicated this is because it's going to be different on every platform. Oh, totally. Uh, when I got the Echo, my first one, I said, geez, how do I get my podcast you know, I do this other podcast called Terrifying Robot Dog. How do I get that pod? How do I say, Alexa, play Terrifying Robot Dog podcast? Because yeah. it would say, oh, I don't know. I don't know that podcast. So I, I was like, geez, how do I do that? It was like a, a lot of research. You know, you, it doesn't, being in iTunes doesn't count. Um, being indexed on the web doesn't count. You have to be in a Stitcher or uh, what was the other one? I'd never even heard of it before. I can't even t- tune in or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, no, 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 it's iHeartRadio. It doesn't even matter. It's like these two services that to me were obscure. And I'm a very technical person. So you can imagine someone who is doing a radio show for the local NPR affiliate and is basically a Philistine when it comes to digital anything. Yep. There's just no, there's no, there's no, they would be, if the price was right, they would be desperate for someone they could trust to separate the hype from reality. And just say, look, Ira, you don't need to worry about, you don't need to worry about these three platforms because the penetration is next to zero. But Roku is in 10 million homes in the US. I don't know. Chromecast has been 24 million Chromecasts sold since it was released. So let's focus on the biggest one of those that, you know, has an overlap with your audience and we'll figure that out. But as we figure it out, we will do so in a way that sets us up to 
also migrate to these other platforms as they become more popular. Because as a group, they're all going to become more popular as cable declines. So in the near term, you get a win. And in the long term, you're setting yourself up for you know, a longer term win. And there's no way somebody who's focused on creating amazing audio content or video, you know, video content's even harder. There's no way these people are going to be experts at that. So they are going to be looking for someone to do that. Yep. So, you know, so, what, so what's the list here. now? I didn't catch that last bit, Jonathan. Well, so I, like the goal, I feel like the goal of this brainstorming section is to come up with a list of every possible group of people that you could approach. So it could be local TV news affiliates. It could be uh, local TV production studios. Mm-hmm. It could be uh, local, local radio, radio stations. stations. Yeah. Yeah. It could right, be. The media world is also fragmented, right? Like you just said before, Jonathan, I think you're totally right that the technology world is fragmented in terms of the delivery services. But now you have all these independent production companies and channels and content developers of various sorts. Just yep. whittling that down is uh, something of a, a task. Well, the yeah, other exactly. the other thing is, is I mean, even the local radio stations that play music, you know, I mean, just streaming it to the TV, and then somebody can send in a request, you know, by selecting a song, or doing a search, or punching it in, or this or that. But yeah, so local radio stations, there are also some of the syndicated shows that might be interested. I mean, you know, I know that mm, uh, you know, horrible. Glenn Beck has an entire network called the blaze that he does uh, both radio and TV. I know that, you know, Dave Ramsey has a bunch of podcasts that he puts out there in addition to his radio show. And he may also be interested in, you know, I mean, what if somebody could go into the Dave Ramsey show app, listen to his show. And then at the end of it, actually buy financial peace university or have one of his books shipped to them or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many aspects to what people are going to want Every single person that is going to be a viable customer is going to have some kind of business goals. Right. It's not, it's not going to be labor of love type people. So you're going to have a list of a dozen different demographics of people who have a business model and they're each going to have different goals. So if you look at like Apple, they make money by selling hardware primarily. Yep. You look at somebody like Google, they make money by selling ads. Even though people feel like they're in competition and maybe they are in certain turf wars, they have a completely different business model. Yeah. So somebody like, you know, somebody who's a New York Times bestseller who does a podcast is interested in getting onto these platforms for a different reason with a different call to action than somebody who has a podcast network and is selling advertising. So picking one of them, the one that, you know, that will sort of reveal itself as you approach these different people and you have conversations with them about, you know, pricing and services, certain ones will reveal themselves as a, a better fit for you for a variety of reasons, including their budget and the call to action that they desire and whether or not that's feasible in the media and the medium and all that. And once you start to hone in on that, you can maybe do a couple of guinea pig type of gigs, maybe a Dave Ramsey type of guy. Say, hey, what if we do a preliminary engagement that's either heavily discounted or free where maybe I get some back end or like a nice case study or testimonial out of it mm-hmm. and say, let's just do it. See how it goes. I don't know what to expect. I'm focusing on this area now, but it's still new to me. It's new to everybody. If you don't mind being a guinea pig, I don't mind doing it for a deal. Right. And then at the end of it, you know, you get this thing, hopefully it's a success, and then Dave can, you know, rave about you across <laughs> his podcast or, you know, wherever. And you get more customers like Dave. Right. So that's one of the other factors in, on your list when you're looking at what's the best target market to focus on or what's the ideal target market is to say, okay, are there a bunch of these or are there really only like five? Right. Probably one a bunch, probably not five. John, I seem to remember uh, when you were telling us a story about how you got into mobile, that it was something like you saw the iPhone uh, launch. You were sure this was the next best thing. And so you learned about it and you started writing about it and then you wrote a book, something like that. And that led to a lot of customers or potential customers coming to you. What sort of balance do you think there is between, you know, Chuck sort of going after these sorts of ideal clients and him writing stuff that would appeal to these sort of ideal clients? Great question. So I recognized in Chuck's conversation last time we talked about this that he was having a similar type of feeling that I had when I saw the iPhone. Like when Chuck saw the new TV stuff. Yeah, I the think new Apple TV. Yeah. I mean, the new Apple TV, 
it's really just one, but it's, it's, the it's light, a, the light totally went on and I, I have, I, and I'm still at that point where I have to do this. You got excited, right? Yeah. You, like you can't stop thinking about it. That's what happened to me. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So, okay. So no brainer. We both had our discipline handed to us on a platter. Okay. That's our discipline. I never picked a target market. I got wicked lucky. I didn't pick a target market. I just got approached by a public. I just started blogging about it. I was just excited. I blogged out of habit. And, you know, I was just talking about stuff because I was just excited about it. And I got really, really lucky because I was at a party with a senior editor at O'Reilly. It was just dumb luck. And the book came out. And so now here's the thing. The thing that's a bummer for me in retrospect is that the book wasn't for my target buyer. The book was for developers. And it was for people who are just getting started. Mm. And I didn't. and, And although it worked for me over time because I just create a reputation and, and it's been five, almost six years than the book's been out. And so like a lot of those people have been promoted to senior positions. So they know me, they trust me. So, you know, over time it will still work. It'll still work out for you. But targeting a secondary, like a recommender to your buyer is less ideal. Not that it can't work, but it creates a longer timeline for you. Yeah, I have the same experience, by the way, with the programming podcast and then trying to get a job as a freelancer doing programming Mm. was that, yeah, I was targeting the recommender to the buyer, which were the developers that worked for the hiring managers or CTOs that would hire me. Right. Yeah. Your content marketing, air quotes, I know that's a dirty word for a lot of people, but the the stuff that you were sharing online was not for your buyer. It was for people who might be able to influence your buyer. Mm-hmm. So in, in a perfect world, you're going to share your passion at the business goal level because those are the people who have the budgets. You know, And that, that sounds a little mercenary, but really if you want to look at it in a more positive way, those are the people who can actually make a difference more quickly. So somebody who's got a budget and a bee in their bonnet that connects with you and the value that you have to offer, the the ROI that you can deliver to them. You guys can change the world much faster. You guys and gals can change the world much faster by skipping over that long lead time thing that doesn't do any good for anybody. So if I was going to you know, just wave my magic wand and say, Chuck, here's your new business, I would say all of the stuff that you get excited about and share online and podcasts and vlogging and blog posts and email marketing and all that stuff, would be about the benefits of being on all these platforms and not about how to do it right. or the complexities of doing it. That's all interesting and useful information, but not to your buyer, your ideal buyer. Your ideal buyer is somebody who, who has strategic objectives and isn't worried about tips and tricks. Yeah, I have to say, though, that my developer mind goes straight to the other thing, right? It goes to the implementation because it's comfortable. Yeah, I totally get that. And don't you need and, some tech cred in this also? Like if you just go to the buyer and you say, oh, I, I know about this stuff, but you don't have any demonstrated skill. Although in Chuck's, in Chuck's case, it's obvious that he does, right? Maybe not on the Apple TV specifically, but certainly dealing with internet, audio, video. Like on that, he's he's got yep. plenty of experience. The, the way well, I the see thing. it, though, is that the answer is yes and no. I mean, I've proven that I can build stuff. The issue is, is that I haven't proven yet that I can deliver the results that they want. Let's skip that for the second because it's new for everyone and no one's an expert at it yet. Right. But to Reuven's question, it's a great question. So there's sort of two ways to look at it. There's two ways to attack the marketing and the sale part. If Chuck markets to directly to the ideal buyer, who's someone who probably is not that technical, that person is going to sick his technical people on Chuck. They're going to go to their in-house or their trusted technical advisor and be like, can you check this guy out? You know, I've been reading his stuff about, you know, getting cross-platform content into the, the new living room, the new living room channel. And, you know, just, could just check it out and tell me what you think. Is he full of it or does he know what he's talking about? And that person, guy or gal, is going to review Chuck's body of work and be like, no, this dude is the real deal. He knows what he's talking about. So you do need to have both. It's preferable to have the buyer send his technical dogs after you and them say, yeah, this guy's the real deal versus the technical people talking directly to technical people and hoping that someday they recommend you to their CTO or CEO. I like that. Right. That makes sense. Because if I focus on the how, then the people who are looking at it are the people trying to figure out the how and then they'll, you know, they might go, you know what? We just need to hire this guy. Whereas the other way around, it's, 
Hey, you know, I want these results. He's, he, you know, he's talking about these results. He's talking about how I can get these results or, you know, what kinds of things I should be looking at to get these results. And I'll just hire him to come in and get me these results. Yeah, it happens to me pretty regularly where I'll go into a meeting. You know, my, my mobile stuff is strictly directed at senior executives like CEOs, CTOs, CMOs. And it's fairly common to get called into a conference call. And they'll say, okay, you know, with us on the call is, you know, some technical person, you know, and they'll ask a bunch of questions and I'll talk about, I'll talk to the business needs, which is, which can come across as hand wavy and platitude ish. And then the technical person will come in and say, oh, well, what about this? And then I'll jump straight into hardcore terminology and I can almost see them nodding. <laughs> the, the CEO in the room, like, yeah, this dude knows all the all the TLAs. The dude knows the terminology. The dude's been there, and it feels like there's a foundation underneath. The thirty thousand foot is supported by boots on the ground, mm-hmm. and honestly, that's why I continue to do development projects throughout the year. You know, just side projects and an occasional paid project, so that I can address that concern in initial client meetings when that technical person is basically sniffing my butt to like, does this guy really know what he's talking about? Well, right. Or is it just another another shyster consultant. Well, it makes sense. I mean, you know, you come in, you can share all the numbers you want, and you can even come in and say, you know, I've done this. But you know, until they actually, yeah, see that you've made some sausage, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. They they just don't know because I mean, anybody can come in and say, hey, look, you know, I spent five minutes on Google, and here are the numbers. Yeah. Here's all this information, but yeah, when it comes right down to it, how do you actually deliver the value? Yeah, you need I'm to be able guess, to John, tell them. And Jonathan, you would know this way better than I. I'm going to guess that there are a lot of mobile strategic consultants out there who've never written a line of code in their lives. And so Absolutely. this is part like, this is part of your added value that you can actually talk about these things and you can bridge the business to the technical worlds. And once you can do that, people see you in a whole different light. Yeah, 100%. Most of the companies that I'm competing with have a sales department who does all of these <laughs> conversations. And then they'll occasionally call in like, not even the CTO, but they'll call in like a lead developer to have a technical conversation. And I use that as a competitive advantage where I say, look, I'm the whole company. Yeah, I'm small, right? It's like I'm not mm-hmm. even going to go up against a sapient apples to apples. But if you want the actual expert if you want one person that embodies the full stack of expertise then you want me there's no option there's really there may be maybe three other options in the whole world right but if you if you want sapient you don't want me anyway so you know it's like no i only need like two clients a year to keep the lights on so i you know there's a lot of companies out there so if if people don't want to be rammed through a process that a sapient type of company is going to put them through and they want actual direct access to somebody who knows what they're talking about, the full range of what they're worried about from strategy to tactics to implementation, then I can actually present myself as a compelling choice, even though I'm a solo operator, you know, versus a company of, you know, a thousand employees. Right. I've actually had people ask me in the past. So like, do we work directly with you? Do you have a project manager? And when I tell them it's me, like I have an employee, but you'll be talking to me and him. And that's, that's it. They are so relieved because they're tired of dealing with these, you know, layers upon layers of management and sales and accounting and so forth. Yeah. I have a, I have direct personal family and close friend access to projects that have been executed by McKinsey type companies and McKinsey, Deloitte, those kinds of companies give consultants a really bad name because they do everything they can to maximize their hourly billing. And it's disastrous. It's a cancer on the industry. It gives everybody a bad name. It holds back the entire first world from making progress that could be made much faster. It's the whole Obamacare fiasco. Like, let's not get into healthcare. But all that stuff is, I'm going off on a tangent a little bit, but the point is that you can chuck in this situation. Mm-hmm. You can actually compete with giant companies if there was one that even did this. I don't think so. But you can compete with giant companies as a solar operator offering a range of high-level strategic advice all the way down to implementation advice. And any freelancer listening to this, you probably have some kind of expertise that is not limited to what you're used to doing with your hands, but also some of the smarter stuff that you give away for free that you do with your mind that could be turned into a product and could attract gigantic customers. I guess the next bit is I'm not sure who I should narrow this list down to 
without actually working with some companies? Yeah, so I'd make a list. How many people do you think, off the top of your head, how many types of companies could you make a list of? Probably three or four, five tops, I think. Types of companies? Well, well I mean, we've, we've talked about that many already. So yeah. It, let's say six. Let's say yeah. six types of companies. And then under each of those, you can definitely come up with three examples. Oh, yeah. So you've got roughly 15 or 20 companies you could reach out to. I would set up, I would just reach out to them and say, hey, I'm thinking about starting a business in this area and I would just love it if we could have a 15-minute phone call where I validated the ideas to make sure that I you know, don't go off on a lark solving problems that nobody actually has. And in exchange for that, I'd be happy to share my expertise on you know, these subjects one, two, three that you might care about. And I do this all the time in coaching and people get it People get a really good, you know, 10, 20% success rate sending out emails like that where they end up on the phone with people, they ask questions. 100% of the time, they are surprised by the responses and you get tons of gold, tons of valuable information about each of the different markets and it will allow you to have something to go on, some kind of data to say, okay, this market's definitely out or because they they just view this as a flash in the pan. They don't, they don't see this as a strategic thing. They see right. it as, as something that is going to go, it's a fad. They see it as a fad. And then these other companies that see this as their whole future. And they've got, this company has X amount of dollars. That company has X amount of dollars, roughly. These other companies have X amount of dollars. So you can get a feel for which of the types of target markets that you've got on your list. Let's say you've got five or six of them. You get a feel right away for which ones are viable and which ones aren't. And then you could either reach back out to the same people. If you really clicked with them on the phone, you could reach back out to the same people and say, you know what, I really loved our phone call. I would like to offer you a special deal where I basically do work for you in exchange for a case study, assuming you like the way the work goes, or you do it for a drastically discounted rate. Mm-hmm. And it's a you know a short-term project, but you know, a real project. Right. And right away you'll you'll have a good defined target market. And that allows you to set up a sales page or some kind of marketing. And it gives you street cred that you've actually got some experience. You're not just thinking about going into this field. But that would be the next step for me. Make the list, set up some phone calls, have a few conversations, and pick the one that seems like the ideal one. Jonathan, there were several parts there that I thought were really interesting in what you just said. Really interesting and useful. So number one, you know, you're saying reach out via email. Number two, you're saying then you want to have a phone meeting, right? So like you don't want to have a bouncing back and forth, but it's okay to meet, you know, talking on the phone. You don't necessarily have to meet with them in person, which I know I've sometimes worried about because it just takes so long to go there and meet with them and so on and so forth. And the third thing is that you said, oh, you know, if you get, you, you, you'd be surprised by what a great response you get, which is going to be 10 to 20%. And if you've been doing this for a long time, then you might say, wow, you know, 10, 20% is really small, but actually, no, that would be great. <laughs> You know, that, that actually, so I, I think, no, I think those suggestions are fantastic. I should say that if, I mean, if someone happens to be in close physical proximity to you, then yeah, a coffee would be great. But that in my world, that hardly ever happens. But yeah, I mean, if you can meet someone in person and they're willing to do it, then great. Generally, it ends up being a phone call because that's the most convenient for everyone. But some, and, and in fact, sometimes in that 10 to 20% response rate, some people won't jump straight on a phone call. They'll say, yeah, I don't have time for a phone call, but shoot me across some questions in email. And you end up doing an email interview. But, you know, what in person is the best if you can do that. Phone call is second best and email is third best. But it, I'm surprised by how many people are willing to share their time with really very little promise of any return. Yeah, I really like the idea, too, of being able to, you know, sit down and figure out what the needs are and then and then go from there. And yeah, you want to solve real problems. Oh, you want yeah. To sit around and think about, geez, what might be real problems? Oh, okay. <laughs> start blogging about these imagined problems. I think people that I don't know have. Yep. It's so funny too, because you're, you're saying, you know, sit down with these people and, and have a 15 minute conversation. And I'm realizing that with some of these companies, just getting to the right people is going to be a challenge. And then with others, you know, yeah, it may be a no brainer. And they're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a range of approaches work with my students. One guy, in fact, has a, he found a dude on Fiverr that just digs up the information for him. So my student uh, will make a list of websites. You know, he's targeting SaaS companies who use Heroku for, you know, a particular service that he's offering. And so what he does is he makes a list. He, he does a little bit of research to find out what SaaS companies are using Heroku and he just creates a Google Doc of all these URLs that is shared with this guy from India 
who he found on Fiverr, who goes through the list and just like scours the internet looking for the email address of the CEO or the CTO. <laughs> and he, fill, he fills in the list. And as the list fills in, my student will go into the list and see which new ones are there. And he'll send out a, a uh, an email that's maybe 75% boilerplate, but 25% heavily customized to the particular person so that they know it's not a shotgun spam type of email. Mm-hmm. And he, he's getting a great response rate. He's, he, I'd be pulling it out of the air if I tried to recall the numbers. But I, I remember being very impressed by his response rate. So, you know, he maybe came up with a... A hundred or so potential URLs of SaaS companies. His Indian assistant guy would come up with, you know, he would fill those in as quickly as possible, which wasn't super fast, but it was fast enough. It was faster than he could have the phone calls. And as they came in, he would shoot out, say, five or 10 emails a week and he'd get two or three, maybe up to four phone calls scheduled or emails scheduled to actually talk with these people. And it's changed the direction of what he's decided to focus on uh, once or twice, where he's like, you know what, I have this idea, let's check it out. And then he talks to people and they couldn't care less about the thing he was planning on offering, but they all exhibited this other need that he never thought of that every single one of them has. Right. And that is a pattern that I've seen repeatedly where you know, you've got a discipline and you think you have a product idea, but when you actually talk to people in the market you're planning on targeting, they don't really care so much about the thing that you're planning on offering, but there is this other thing that is within your area of expertise that they're that's killing them, the so-called expensive problem that they're actually having. Well, that's what I find so interesting about your idea of don't go to them. It's sort of almost the opposite of productized consulting, or maybe it's like a, a sneaky pseudo uh, productized consulting, because productized consulting is here is what you're offering, take it or leave it. And here you're basically it's, saying- Well, you, it's, the, you might, it's the preliminary step. Okay, right. But you're basically saying to them, listen, I don't know exactly what you want. Tell me what your problems are because I want to be able to solve them. And that's a really hard offer for business to turn down, right? Like someone is calling me on the phone and says, tell me what your problems are. I want to figure out if I can solve them for you. Sure, I'll give them 15 minutes, right? Yeah, I mean, there's some, you have to be careful about what your questions are because you could be a competitor. And if you get on the phone with the CEO of a SaaS who's trying to get into a hockey stick phase and you ask a question like, what new features are you planning for the next 12 to 18 months? That's <laughs> okay. going to raise a red flag with them. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, maybe this is my main competitor. Right. So you need to be delicate with your questioning. But in my experience, everybody who does this is surprised by how willing to share people generally are and how often their original idea is not that great. But that there is a great idea, you know? It's funny. I feel like across the entire spectrum of services that I offer, the number one thing I recommend to people is talk to your potential users slash customers to answer these questions. A lot of the things that people want to do, they just want to, they don't want to talk to anyone. They want to sit around in their boardroom or in their basement and think about things until they come up with an answer. And it's a gigantic waste of time because in, in many cases, because your customer or your user, your potential user is the only one that has this answer. So just ask them. Yep. Mm-hmm. So what's the takeaway for the dear freelancer? Well, ultimately, uh, I think there are a couple. One is is that uh, what I'm going to do is a discipline and not a target market. Uh, yes. You, your niche that you picked was a discipline, not a target market. Yeah. Yes. The other takeaway is you don't have to know who you're going to target, but you have to know who you're going to target. And what I mean is is that you don't have to have completely narrowed down the who, but you can figure out who the who probably is and then go talk to them to figure out which who you want to work with. I think that was very useful. So, you know, we, we gave the, the different categories of people that might need the solution that I've come up with and then go talk to them. I think that's the other big takeaway is just go talk to them and figure out what they're really worried about, what kind of language they're using to talk about it, what their concerns are. There's a great book actually that I'm about halfway through right now called Ask by Ryan Levesque, and he talks about how to get this information from your potential customers. Ooh, I've never heard of that one. That sounds great. And Yeah, yeah I, just ask. Jeez. Yeah, it, and so, yeah, so he tells you how to basically put together a survey, but there's no reason why you couldn't just go and ask these questions directly to people. But he tells you how to ask them and which questions to ask and how to figure out what to ask so that you're getting the information that you need. And he's pretty well focused around, you know, a SaaS or service offering. As far as, you know, figuring out what your audience or your market actually wants. 
uh, the fabled product market fit. <laughs> so you you know you you find this group of people and then you ask them the the right questions to get the information that you need. So, mm. so there's one and there's one last takeaway that I would urge people to consider, which is that especially if you're thinking, people tend to think of themselves as implementers or doers. And I would urge you to, you know, let's say you write copy. You think of yourself as, you know, I, I write copy and, and people who do development, they, they, I code. Think of the other aspects of your expertise or your, your discipline where you are more of an expert than your customers are. So, you, you know, I know some people are uncomfortable calling themselves experts because they know they're, there's someone on the planet who knows more about it than they do. But as long as you know more about it than your potential customers, then for all intents and purposes, you are an expert as far as they're concerned. So think about the things that you could offer to those people that are farther up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Not the, you know, I'll build you a house, but more about I'll design you a house that meets your needs. Mm -hmm. Or I'll recommend the materials that you should maybe use for your house based on the availability in your area and the fact that you have earthquakes. Or even farther up the hierarchy of needs where I will help you decide whether or not you really should buy a house or, or build a house, you know, just try and always be thinking a little bigger about what it is that you know about that could potentially help the people who currently you're doing, call it handwork for people. So, you're, you know, you're, you're writing words, you're writing code, you're creating PDF comps. Think about the other things that you are good at or the things that you've picked up along the way that would be of value to your customers that are a little bit more advicey and a little bit less deliverable-ish. Mm -hmm. Advicey versus deliverable-ish. Potentially coined a TM right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love the the words, the new words. What, what, what do you call what do you call new words that somebody just invented? Coining tra trademarks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I, I definitely have more questions, but I think I'll save them for right now. Should we get into picks? Sure. All right. Ruben, do you have some picks for us? I have one pick. I seem to be doing a lot of podcast picks lately, but just reflects the fact that I'm on the train a lot listening to them. So as of our recording, the most recent uh, This American Life, it, the, the title is Put a Bow on It. And I saw this on my phone. I was like, put a bow on it? What the heck are they talking about? And what they were talking about is when things go wrong, how can you make them look better? And they talked about corporations having problems and how they sort of, you know, change their image. And look, I, I've heard from, I have friends who have made mistakes in business. And it's often useful to be able to know sort of how do companies get out of these problems. And one of the ways that they talk about it is marketing and uh, advertising. And uh, I thought it was very interesting the way they attacked it. And they specifically talk about the recent problems that Volkswagen has been having. You know, self-inflicted problems of lying to people. So it's not just problem problems. But um, how would they go about it? And how can you sort of turn the tables on these problems and turn what's clearly a, a problem and, a, and a, an issue into something that will make your customers feel less alienated. So uh, definitely worth a listen. At the very least, the last, I can say the first part and the last part. That's it for me this week. All right, Jonathan, what are your picks? I'm going to recommend Steal the Show by Michael Port. It is a, uh, a new book from someone who's actually guested on Freelancer Show in the past and is specifically geared toward becoming a better public speaker. You know, so for all the different performances in your life, whether that's uh, a pitch for venture capital or you're trying to get a raise at your, your full-time day job or you're trying to land a client gig or you're doing a public speaking engagement, uh, he's got sort of advice about how to turn your talk into a, sh a performance, more of a show, think of it more like a show, and achieve the outcome that you desire to achieve. So instead of just delivering the information at, say, a, a conference talk, you think about it more so like how you want to change the audience's lives and you deliver the content in that way. And it's, uh, it's, it's really good. You know, he's got an acting background, so he knows all about how to prepare for these types of things. Uh, and it's a good read. So I would recommend checking it out. I'm reading it on, uh, I've got actually the physical book and a Kindle book, uh, but it's also available on Audible if you're that type of person. So it's definitely worth, definitely worth a listen or a read. All right. Uh, I've got a couple of picks. Uh, my picks are all going to be books, I think. So I've kind of had my mind blown this weekend 
First of all, on Saturday, I had to do some work on my car. I have people actually get on me that it's a waste of time, but for me, it's kind of relaxing. So it's sort of a hobby and sort of a necessity at the same time. But anyway, um, while I was listening, I, uh, or while I was working, I decided to play an audiobook I bought uh, a while back, uh, recommended by John Sonmez, who's also been on the show, I think. Anyway, it's called Money Master the Game by Tony Robbins. I got about two thirds of the way through it. Um, working on the car, meaning I was doing it all day yesterday, listening at like two and a half speed. And it kind of blew my mind. And I definitely want to go back and work through some of the exercises that he has for kind of figuring out where you need to be to be financially independent and then to be at the place where you're actually, you know, funding those, uh, far off in dreamland kind of things that you never think you're actually going to get. It, it really kind of opened my mind up to the possibility that if I'm smart and deliberate, that I can actually expand my wealth to the point where I can then sort of count on being able to live on what I've got. Not that I ever plan to retire. I, I just think it's a horrible idea. Maybe when I'm older, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know. The, the people I know who have retired say, A, they've never been happier and B, they've never been busier. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But the other thing is, is that, you know, it, he talks a lot about the, the current investable items out there the things that you should know that nobody really talks about. So yeah, so that, that got me thinking about a whole lot of other things that I want to go research now. The other book, as I mentioned before, is The Positioning Manual by Philip Morgan. And anyway, it's it's been a really great read. A lot of the stuff is stuff that we've talked about on this show. A lot of the stuff is stuff that I've discussed with other people. But to have it all in one place and then to have it actually go through and say, here are the kinds of questions you want to ask and here are the kinds of things you want to do and here are the kinds of strategies that you can employ to figure out what you're doing and why you're doing it and all that stuff. It's just a terrific place. So definitely go pick that up. And uh, those are my picks. Well, thanks for all of the uh, advice, <laughs> I guess. And, uh, you know, it's definitely helpful to kind of have somebody with maybe a little more practiced hand talk through some of this stuff. But yeah, if you're wondering about some of the things that you can do to figure this out, I definitely recommend you go pick up Philip's book. It's, it's well worth the money. And with that, I guess we'll wrap up. We'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash form. 